0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. I'm John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. All right, so let's discuss the last 24 hours in the life of Joe Biden's uh, life-saving career-saving, transformational reconciliation bill uh, that uh, he has placed so much stock in. He is leaving for a trip to Europe tomorrow, Thursday, and we're told that there is a desperate desire to get a framework for this gigantic multi-trillion dollar bill in place before he gets on the plane. Twelve thirty yesterday afternoon, uh, the number two person in the House of Representatives, Democrat Steny Hoyer, according to Lisa Desjardins of of of, um, PBS NewsHour, says Hoyer just told us an agreement on reconciliation could come in the, quote, next few hours, unquote. Note, that's wildly different than the picture members across the spectrum gave me today. Today, tomorrow, critical, but ours seems out of step. Okay, that was 1230. Let's move on to 921 p.m. Washington Post front page headline uh, on the website. Two days before the president's planned trip, talks continued between Democrats warring moderate and liberal factions on roughly $3 trillion in new economic spending initiatives, unquote. If you read between the lines here, we know that the hard infrastructure bill, which is one of the two things that's being discussed here, and that passed the Senate with a veto-proof majority and is waiting on the House to act, is a trillion dollars. So from this, we can glean, if it's roughly $3 trillion in spending, that the budget reconciliation package that Biden is now working on costs $2 trillion. So this headline is a bizarre headline because if it's $2 trillion, it's dead. Joe Manchin has said, wrote not bad." said it in March, has keep, kept saying it, it's a trillion and a half or he's not supporting it. Now you can see how a person who says that might move up some. To a trillion seven. But uh, two trillion from a trillion five is a 33 percent increase. And he's going to say no because he doesn't want the bill at all, obviously. And he's looking for a way to say no in the way that makes him look as 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 comfortable as possible. He's in a state that Trump won by 40 points and all of that. He doesn't want to vote for it. Neither does uh, neither does Senator Sinema of of Arizona. So he is being the hard ass. Meanwhile, you know. Everybody in the in the press is like, hey, look, hey, squirreling with these two new taxes, the billionaire tax and the corporate minimum tax. Yay, this is great. There's going to be a corporate minimum tax and a billionaire tax. Well, the billionaire tax isn't going to go. Nobody likes it. The, ha- the head of the House Ways and Means Committee says it's not workable. It's unconstitutional. Corporate minimum tax is there. Kristen Cinema supports it. So she supports it, but Manchin's against it. So it doesn't matter because remember, Democrats can't lose a single Democratic vote in the Senate. Everything is dead if they lose a single Democratic vote in the Senate. But this gave reporters and everybody something new to talk about, which are these two tax provisions in the bill. It doesn't matter because Manchin's against Flip one, cinema's against the other. Right. And then let's go on to this morning. Punch bowl. Newsletter Punchbowl is one of these new newsletter publications, uh, staffed by reporters uh, from Politico and stuff, uh, who are now trying to, you know, make a make a buck off the Substack newsletter revolution. So they do a daily newsletter, written by uh, Jake Jake Sherman, John Bresnahan, Anna Palmer. Happy Wednesday. Let's be blunt: Democrats aren't close to a framework agreement on their massive reconciliation package. We've heard Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer talk about great progress, but our reporting and the available public evidence doesn't match these sunny claims. Biden hoped to have that framework deal in place before he leaves for Rome on Thursday, but without a big tra- turnaround in the next 24 hours, that's not going to happen. Now I want to praise my my colleagues here because um, uh, we have um, uh, Noah, Noah pointing out that um, – the next headline we're gonna see here is Republicans pounce on democratic challenges. Eventually, somehow this has got to be the Republicans' fault for pouncing on the fact that Democrats are so here we are. We're not Republican, you know, we're not Republican officials and Republican Party operatives, but we're pouncing. My pouncing is this. What the hell is going on? <laughs> what there is no bill. There is no bill, it's not gonna pass. They set this deadline of October thirty first. Apparently, which is of course hilarious. Apparently, one of the reasons that that deadline was in place is that some of the transportation spending that will be that that is stuffed into the infrastructure bill,
1: the current transportation spending runs out unless that bill is signed. That's the yeah, that's a ha- fig leaf too. That's nonsense too. You can easily pass an extension of that sort of thing as a separate item. Uh, and all this is again, you know, just something you had said earlier. You could intuit. John, I think it was yesterday. You can intuit from the coverage of this that didn't match reality, that it was a lot of cheerleading, sort of incepting a deal into existence that didn't actually exist. Yeah, oh, we're so close to a deal. And uh, Senator, Oregon Senator Jeff Markley today um, said the following to NBC News, quote, there are just huge pieces of this that are not nailed down. So each time I hear, well, it's almost done, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. The, the tone of exasperation just leaps out of the text at you. And it makes a lot of sense because anybody who's observing this thing, even from a a remove like ours, can see that this isn't going to fail. And it's going to fail in the precise same way that it failed last time. They had a self-set deadline. The progressives mostly imposed a self-set deadline on this process in order to couple the infrastructure bill that passed resoundingly through the Senate with this non-existent reconciliation bill full of spiritual metaphysical items of social infrastructure. And that was never going to happen. It didn't happen in October. They set another self-set deadline, which all of a sudden now corresponds with Joe Biden's trip to to Europe. That wasn't even on the radar a month ago. And all of a sudden it's become this this focal point, which is nonsense. The deadline that we all understand to be approaching rapidly is November 2nd. And the, the very first whiff That Democrats are going to get of a backlash among the electorate from their voters, the voters they need in 2022, to what has been a shambolic process that doesn't even remotely reflect their priorities, most of which are economic and increasingly urgent.
2: I just don't understand why the Democrats haven't yet learned that everything that they've been about since Biden took office is dashed expectations. So why they continually raise expectations, and I don't—I don't just mean. I mean it's—it's it's one thing to you know you, to be positive, but um, they've been Baghdad bobbing this entire process again and again. You have Nancy Pelosi out there talking about how they're on the verge of something transformative. There was a time, the first time this failed, uh, when, when around when there was no deal, where Democrats had a better message. They were saying briefly things like. Look, the timeline isn't what's important. We don't have to get this done today. We don't have to get this done this week. The important thing is that we're making uh, good and proper change for the majority of American people, and, and, and we will get there. That's a much better message. This just reveals how incompetent and untrustworthy they are throughout every step
3: of this but the, but the hype all the all the boosterish talk does uh, helpfully obfuscate at least i think they think it's doing this we we see it and i think a lot increasingly the american public are seeing it, it helps to obfuscate just how um uh, fractured their own coalition is the progressives are really putting pressure on them and pelosi and schumer have not figured out how to handle that that force and rather than kind of deal with that in the open. They're keeping all of that internal stuff internal. Meanwhile, they can't get anything done.
0: Um, I'm reminded of Dick Morris and Fox News. And when Dick Morris uh, was sort of uh, had moved from being an analyst, uh, a a political consultant analyst to being kind of like a rah-rah, you know, mailing list guy, Going on TV talking about how Mitt Romney was going to win and Mitt Romney was going to win and that was going to win, and then a week after the election, he said, "I knew Mitt Romney wasn't going to win, but I just thought it was important to keep everybody's spirits up." And that kind of ended his career as a pundit because once he said, "Well, I knew something. There was something I I believed to be true, and I was actually lying about it." Because and so you know you can't if your purpose is to be there to provide analysis. Uh, then that's, you know, like what you're going to say from now on is that no one, no one can ever, you know, trust that what you're saying is actually something you believe and not just something you're saying for effect. Well, Pelosi and Hoyer and these people seem to believe that, that their role, and they're they're not Dick Morris, they're not pundits com- com- commenting on TV, they're running a political party and political, you know, uh, political organizations is to keep everybody's spirits up so we're going you know we're there's a deal in a few hours we're doing something transformative we're so close we can taste it we can taste it meanwhile i noticed that in fundraising terms i know this from terry mcauliffe's fundraising campaign because i get five or six emails a day from the terry mcauliffe campaign saying i'm terrified this is terrible john says the headline I'm begging you. I can't believe what I'm seeing. So on the one hand, you have this rallying cry of, we're almost there. The problem, you know, it's there. We can land ho. We can see the, the new world. And on the other, one of the ways that they raise money from people is to say, disaster is upon us. And they've clearly chosen one over the other when they need to raise money and rally the faithful, but when they need to rally reporters who should be more sophisticated than this, they go to the "It's there. Look, you know, just just
2: past the tree line. There it is. But El Dorado, you know what's been delightful to, to see though? Um, the first time round, before the first failure, um, they got the cheerleading section of the press. On board with their happy talk, you know, and so the 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 the, that segment was saying, you know, things like, oh, everyone's talking about failure. They don't know what they're talking about. This is the way deals get done. It's going to get done. But they burned them because there was no deal getting done. And this time you're not quite seeing that there is the, the supposed straight reporting is is is, you know, faithfully. Quoting them, quoting the Democrats on the progress about to be made, but there's not there's not the same level of cheerleading. Okay, so hey, in analogy terms, bouncing. who's Lucy? Bouncing.
0: So, so in analogy terms, who's Lucy and who's Charlie Brown, and what's the football? Is the football the infrastructure bill? Pramila. Pramila is Pramilla, the the Lucy. <laughs> Pramila is Lucy. She's the head of the Progressive Caucus. Is Charlie Brown Biden? Is Charlie Brown? The media Charlie Brown, Pelosi, and is the football the infrastructure deal or the budget reconciliation deal? But somebody is pulling the football out from somebody who is yet again falling for it. I mean, that's essentially right. That's Lucy, Charlie Brown, and the football. Or to be more pretentious, let me just read to you from, yes, Friedrich Nietzsche, because ultimately, since this exact same thing happened two months ago, and unless there is this miracle over the next two days and something actually gets done which is really hard to believe but you know again people will be able to use this podcast in the future uh if a deal is struck as you know exhibit a in our blindness and in inability to see the brilliance of what's going on behind the scenes but nietzsche in his book the gay science um you know spelled out the idea of eternal recurrence or the eternal return you know which is the idea that everything that has ever happened happened before and will happen again simply by sort of the laws of eternity. And, of course, he said this, what if someday or night a demon were to steal after you in your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it. But every pain and every joy and every thought and sign, everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you all in the same succession and sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god and never have I heard anything more divine? So maybe Nancy Pelosi, maybe they're all, they love this. Maybe the idea that they're going to live through all of this again, it's like chaos and and complexity and, and, and negotiation and everything. And maybe they're enjoying this. Certainly, it looks like Pramila Jaipal is enjo- enjoying this. She's like a nobody, nothing who is suddenly incredibly powerful. Uh, for no, for no good, re- for no good reason. Um, anyway, uh, so Charlie ran the football. Nietzsche and the Eternal Return. This is where we are. We had this conversation two months ago. We're having it again, and you know what? Maybe we'll have it again because they'll table no, it. No, I don't. I don't okay. think
1: we will, and here's why. Um, <clears throat> I really do think this is the last bite at the apple, in part because you mentioned the um, Virginia governor's race. And there is a a better way. I mean, fundraising, overwrought fundraising solicitations aside, that's just sort of a way you get engagement to be like, we're going to lose unless you contribute $100 by the deadline. That's just sort of tried and true best practices. What we saw last night at a rally for Terry McAuliffe, the closing rally for Terry McAuliffe's campaign in which President Joe Biden attended, Uh, was to me an air raid siren that was just a deafening signal of how terrified the Democrats are that they're going to lose this race and all the momentum behind this presidency. Um, Terry McAuliffe was out there implying or being very explicit that his opponent, uh, Glenn Youngkin, is a racist, is a book banner. Uh, hates Tony Morrison. We talked about this yesterday. He hates black people. He, he's, he's trying to impose culture wars on the schools by noticing that culture wars are being imposed on the schools. And Joe Biden's out there echoing these sentiments, saying very explicitly that the January 6th rioters are no different from Glenn Youngkin. They share a very similar intellectual uh, 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 intellectual affinity. And that he is desperately goading Donald Trump into the race, saying, where is Donald Trump? Why isn't Donald Trump commenting on this race? Why can't we get Donald Trump on the record about this race? They're desperate for Trump to reinsert himself into politics and to be relevant again, which he's apparently not, according to these solicitations. If he were, they wouldn't have to make them. Uh, this, to me, indicates that they know they're, they're down, that they think they're going to lose, And if the deadline for passing this thing is October 31, not because Joe Biden is getting on a plane, but because they think the backlash against democratic governance is going to be such that the psychological effects will all but freeze negotiations over any sort of sweeping, transformative social compact legislation. Um, that the clock is ticking down and they're behind the eight ball and they know it. This is the last opportunity they have to get something really transformative done. They've been talking themselves up into a froth since the special elections in Georgia that they have this mandate. They need to use it now while they can. They're going to fail in that charge and they won't get another shot. The only people happy about that are progressives because they have nothing to lose. They're not up against the wall in, in November of next year. All the moderates are and the majorities are and the president is. They have something to lose. The progressive caucus doesn't want a half a loaf, and they don't. They don't have to sacrifice anything. They'll be more prominent in the minority.
0: Well, um Nancy Pelosi, according to Punchbowl News, was in Virginia also last night, raised eight hundred thousand dollars for Terry McAuliffe. So what?
1: Democrats are swimming in money.
0: So
3: across what? the country, they're swimming so what? in money. It, yeah, the problem so isn't what? the money; it's the message. You can't turn on the TV
0: in Virginia. You haven't been able to turn on the TV in Virginia. I don't even know what they're going to spend it on. Every commercial time, every commercial slot is eaten up. Every every you know every web ad, every you know optimized shmeggy uh, that you can pay for is already paid for. When they start talking about how much money they're raising, that's also like a b- bizarre red flag. It's like you see people are p- rich. People are really enthusiastic about getting uh, Terry McAuliffe elected. Like. Um, there are weird pieces of data in 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 the Virginia polling, um, and again, polling is 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 inaccurate and problematic, but not necessarily all that inaccurate and problematic when it shows that things are shading in the in in the conservative direction because Republicans and conservatives are the ones who don't participate in polls that say that on education and taxes, taxes and education. Um, Yunkin is up by 13 points. Uh, I, I, in a weird way, I I, I kind of, sort of find it hard to see how McAuliffe is going to win if those numbers are right, particularly since education is now showing up bizarrely high in the polls as a as a major issue in Virginia well, I'm talking you know, about. You know
3: what nobody wanted in the mainstream media wanted to report on that happened yesterday in Loudoun County, Virginia? Two things. Well, over the last two days. Students at several high schools staged walkouts to protest the fact that the county and the school board tried to cover up several sexual assaults by a trans student, so that happened. The other thing that happened was a Loudoun County Board school board meeting where so many parents signed up to speak and air their concerns that they were limited to one minute at a time. So that's what's not being reported. So it doesn't really matter how much money Terry McAuliffe throws at a television screen for commercials. That's what he's avoiding addressing. And they were dismissive of those parents concerned and brought Barack Obama in to say it was a trumped up culture war made up by Fox News. They are in denial about what's going on. Particularly with the education issue.
2: Um, let me I mean, go ahead. A, if you fast forward, and uh, there will have been no deal, and uh, McAuliffe loses, um, the Democrats will be in desperate, desperate need to regroup. I mean, to really, to really sort of go at things in an entirely different way. And I don't see how they can. Because of the pressure from progressives, um, they 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 may be in an extraordinarily tricky spot. I mean, tricky as in you know completely stymied after this. Here, here is the, the the
0: interesting conundrum that faces Democrats, which is that they know that they need enthusiasm on the part of 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 Democratic voters, base voters, to particularly next year. Like that is that is mother's milk to a party in a midterm election. They need, and the base is progress. The base is progressive. We are now in a situation in which it appears that the wants and needs and desires and hungers of the progressive base may be, uh, may cause um, anaphylactic shock on the part of the suburban independents. Who gave Democrats this forty seat margin, you know, forty seat victory in the House in 2018? That everything they want is simultaneously what is turning off the people who got Biden elected and got the Democrats the margin of victory in the House that they that they that they secured. That is a real problem um, because if they can't figure out a way to harmonize the desires of the Democratic base. Without turning off the non-Democrats that they need to push them over the top, they're facing Armageddon. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's hard when you look at the composition of these things to see that kind of Armageddon. But it let's say Yunkin wins by a point. That's an eleven-point shift. Biden won the state by ten a year earlier. If 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 Youngkin loses by one that will be a nine point shift they're already it's already visible crt and trans stuff is the thing and particularly in relation to kids in schools and all that is the thing that has been that has been propelling the yunkin campaign to this tide race
3: and can can I just say something about a, another form of denial? And Biden is a, is the perfect example of this. And it's actually both both as a matter of bringing more, uh, uh, cooling down the tone and rhetoric of of how we have uh, elections and debates about issues and ideas. It was it's the exact opposite. So last night when he went over to Arlington to to stump for McAuliffe, he said extremism can come in many forms. It can come in the rage driven to assault the Capitol. It can come in a smile and a fleece vest. Now, for those of you who aren't following this race closely, Youngkin tends to campaign in a fleece vest. He's a pretty avuncular, you know, guy. So this idea, he's equating, you know, the, the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, he's equating Youngkin with them. He's constantly trying to get provoke Trump into responsiveness. He was elected to be the opposite of that kind of, Politician, and he's embraced it, which to me is a sign of desperation, and/or is a sign of what what a jerk he's always been as a politician. Which anyone who knows Biden over the years knows he tends to be. Uh,
0: I want to. I want to. We're talking about the wealth tax a little earlier and the billionaire tax or whatever, and I want to quote you something from 2019 in relation to this. By David Bonson, head of the Bonson Group, uh, three. Billion dollar under management financial services firm, a uh, longtime sponsor of the commentary podcast. David wrote this in 2019. Uh, How in the world is a liquid real estate that has not sold supposed to be valued each and every year, let alone illiquid businesses, private debt, venture capital, and the wide array of capital assets that make up our nation's economy? but do not fit in the cozy box of mutual funds. There is a reason why we tax realized gains in our society and not theoretical gains, because one is actually a gain and the other is theoretical. We do not tax theoretical income. Money your employer might pay you. We tax money you receive. And a capital gain is not a capital gain until it is sold as such. And that is true because of the meaning of the word gain. If you've been following, if you've been following David Bonson for the last couple of years, you would have read this about what just happened with Ron Wyden and his billionaires tax in David Bonson's own work in National Review and commentary and elsewhere. Because we published David uh, talking about Elizabeth Warren and wealth taxes in commentary as well. That is the kind of far seeing, commonsensical. Uh, wisdom that you get from David's two newsletters, thedctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, one daily, the other weekly. Go to dividendcafe.com today and sign up for David's newsletters for this kind of far seeing. Know what you're gonna, supposed to be thinking about something in 2023 when you read about it in 2021 in David's newsletters from the Bonson Group. Go to dividendcafe.com to sign up for them. The antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, Okay. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, this sounds like gloating. And on the other hand, it's just, it's more of this, am I taking crazy pills stuff? I'll give you another example of I am taking crazy pills. So there is this, you know, story about this uh, rape in a girl's, you know, or sexual assault, whatever, in a girl's bathroom in Loudoun County, and how the school board uh, or the school superintendent said, "We we have no report of any sexual assaults in bathrooms." Saying it, knowing that this there had been a report of this, a judge has essentially found that it happened. Um, and then the question arises: Was the was the assaulter who is male uh, a trans person who was in a girl's bathroom wearing a skirt, and therefore, you know, uh, it's it's this is something that was being suppressed because because the. Um, uh, the criminal here uh, was was a trans male or a trans... I I can't remember what these terms are, but a male who was wearing... A, a trans woman. A trans woman, thank Born you. Born male. yeah. Or even more interestingly in my... So the Washington Post did a very good story about what came out in court yesterday about how this story may be more complicated than we had originally been led to believe. Which is nice because uh for the last 10 years uh we have been arguing time and again particularly with very complicated he said she said sex crimes among youth um that this predilection not to not to give the accused the benefit of the doubt has led to a lot of incredibly unjust behaviors particularly on the part of colleges and the like And that often these stories are more complicated. And it turns out this story is more complicated except for this one detail, which is the assaulter in question. One of the reasons that when they passed the first transgender bathroom law, which I think was in North Carolina, that people said they didn't want this in schools was precisely the idea that predatory males would somehow use the this as a kind of loophole to allow them access to places where girls do things in private and what they would do would therefore be perfectly acceptable because you wouldn't be able to question why they were in the girl's bathroom or the girl's locker room or something like that this fits this precisely it doesn't matter whether he is a trans woman or whether he was just Wearing a skirt or whatever. Clearly, she and he both agree that they had been sexual partners and that this time he had assaulted her. He told the court that he had messed up. That he had misread her signal, whatever it was.
3: Then he, you should add. Then he was transferred to another school without anyone at the school being informed, and he committed an additional assault at the oh, other. Oh, he school. is
2: accused of committing.
0: He's accused assault. of committing an additional right.
3: assault at that second school too.
2: Right. Um. That very concern about the transgender bathrooms was the most ridiculed concern at the time. Right. What uh, if you if you expressed this very worry, people say what? Well, why on earth are we arguing about who gets to use what
3: bathroom? Who cares about what where people go to the bathroom? Oh, give me a break! Well, and and the other th- reason that people wanted to just poo poo that, as you say, Abe, which they do, and they still do, even with regard to like whether whether trans women should be allowed in women's prisons. I mean, they, these are actually real issues uh, for the for the some of the most vulnerable populations that that we have in this country, but the re- the danger is the trans woman in the girls bathroom there's there's really not been as far as i know documented cases or accusations of assault of a trans man in a man's bathroom so that there again this speaks to the actual biological differences between the sexes and the the differences in the rates of assault by one sex against the other which is something nobody also wants to weirdly because when it comes to campus you know rape culture feminists will talk about that ad nauseum but once it gets more complicated and in this venue then suddenly sex differences can't matter well look i mean
0: you know greg abbott yesterday signed into law uh, a, a a law saying that a trans woman could not uh, participate in female sports uh you know uh public sports in high schools and stuff like that again something that is going to be largely ridiculed or attacked or assaulted over the next couple of days but when you're talking about what resonates with ordinary people these two things resonate with ordinary people much more than the idea of uh, re- resonate much more and have much more political impact than people realize because i think even conservatives who are you know horrified by by trans ideology or something like that can can experience maybe even more a, a, a kind of pained compassion for the tortured nature of people who have gone to these lengths or these extremes because they are so uncomfortable with themselves and their own bodies that they want to change their identities in the most radical possible way possible, and that that is something that encourages or causes compassion and worry and fear and upset and a desire not to be mean to people who are in the minds of such people, Being as cruel to themselves as they could ever possibly be, and no one needs to pile on in that case. We're talking here about the question of whether there is a situationally unethical or barbaric thing that can happen when you open this door. Two people who are so eager to succeed in athletics that they will wear a, you know, that they will wear a skirt in order to win a basketball game because they're because they can't make it on the on the male basketball team or that they will dress this way and act this way in order to give themselves access to areas in which girls are to be able to do private girl things in private particularly when they are teenagers in puberty that is the thing that everyone is actually worried about <laughs> the thing that everyone is actually terrified of and the and the thing that has much greater political resonance than the compassion argument does
3: well, and the the left won't allow us as conservatives to do both like i I absolutely have tolerance and and in the adult the realm of the adult context with consenting adults, I have no problem with with a trans woman using the bathroom that i i mean i don't that who cares. When you're talking about children, you can have compassion for people in that situation, but also concern for the privacy rights of the kids who aren't trans. And that's what gets lost as soon as you say, well, what about these kids' concerns, the vast majority's concerns? You're called insensitive. You're called transphobic. There's no room for the complicated reality most people dwell in, which is that you can feel absolute compassion. And as we all teach our kids and, and, you know, Total. You need to have tolerance for different ways that people want to live their lives. That's fine. But there are, as you say, John, practical, um, some of these are safety issues, and a lot of them are really privacy issues and the rights of people to feel like they can change their clothes in a private space that is single sex. That's, a, that's the complicating factor. And for children, I think the stakes are higher and the rules should be different.
0: Also, look, a very small number of people are 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 criminals very small number of people behave and act criminally but we create all kinds of barriers that affect everybody and inconvenience everybody in order to make it harder for pe- for criminals to engage in criminal behavior in other words we would have these rules about bathrooms precisely because there might be one case in 50,000 where something like this could happen um because you know for the most part you could have you could have non-gender specific bathrooms locker rooms everything like that and people would come up with a way to manage and make do and maneuver around it without being all that embarrassed or humiliated but in order to protect us against the very small number of people who would use the freedom that is being granted to take advantage and to do something despicable or horrible we inconvenience ourselves or create barriers that is what society is about that is how rules are promulgated they are promulgated because they're not promulgated to protect to sort of anyway uh, I, you, you get the you get the point that i'm that i'm making and i just think it's interesting because it's like there They're just going to keep walking into this buzzsaw, not understanding what it is that ordinary people feel commonsensically about the destruction of absolute basic standards of human conduct that is going on here in the name of liberation and, you know, compassion and freedom. And that ordinary people look at a lot of this from CRT to the 1619 Project to trans write stuff and say... What are you people crazy? You people are crazy. And if we go on like this, the Democratic Party is going to become a, you know, sort of like radical frenzy, hothead, you know, hothouse atmosphere that pushes out everybody who might otherwise vote and support them because they're promulgating ideas that are just, outside of rational boundaries of social conduct. Can
3: can I just also add, it's bad for everyone if one of the, look, we know the Republicans have lost, legitimately so, lost credibility on the governance issue because of Trump and his questioning of the election and whatnot. That's a reality. And whether or not you're a Republican who agrees with Trump or disagrees vehemently with him, that is still on the R side. But there's a version of this emerging on the on the left with regard to these culture war issues. So there was a our friends at the Free Beacon just had an interesting story this morning about how in Loudoun County, if parents want to look at what the critical race theory uh, curriculum is at their in Loudoun County schools, they have to sign what what amounts to a non disclosure agreement and say they won't talk about it and that it's not public information. How is that suppressing? you know, public transparency, a good form of governance, even at the local level. And there's a sense in which the dismissiveness of the Terry McAuliffe and Joe Bidens of the world with anyone who says this doesn't make sense to me, that's all that contempt and dismissiveness is is part of that. It's how, why should we explain ourselves to you? We're tolerant. You're not. That's all you need to know.
2: And, you know, another part piece of this is that so they're advancing you know, the, 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 this crazy agenda that that uh average Americans don't relate to, and in some cases doing so very aggressively, while also while simultaneously being unable to do the basic things that that government is is charged with doing. Um that
1: contrast is 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 what kills them. But the question is, will they be able to learn the lesson if and when they receive a rebuke from voters for this sort of thing? So Economy issues are now the leading issues among voters. Republicans have traditionally dominated eco- economic issues. Democrats get to fall back on social stuff. They get to fall back on their general American tolerance and acceptance and liberalism towards you know, minorities and minority views and uh, uh, just about any, any other libertine you know, idea about how society can conduct, conduct itself. The Democrats have traditionally had the edge on that. Education is just one venue where Democrats have a prohibitive edge. And previously, all you had to do is say, I'm going to throw money at the schools. So both, in Virginia's case, both McAuliffe and Youngkin are saying, throw money at the schools. That's just the default position. But also, one is saying no social engineering in the schools, and the other one is saying, yes, social engineering in the schools, and also no parents, you know, parents out. And they're so they lose the social issue. There's no issue that they would own in that case, and that's an existential crisis from a Democratic perspective. The easy response to that should be, Let's jettison these elements of our coalition that are hopelessly blinkered, authoritarian, uh, ideologically dogmatic, and totally out of step with the rest of the country. Easy decision, right? They can't do it. There's not going to be a way for them to do it. There's no opening for them to do it. They are hostages to, this, to the very small cabal that is loud and has total command of the levers of cultural uh, power in this country. Uh, I mean, you're calling them in, in media, not just news media, but cultural media and pop culture. All that stuff is exerting influence over Democrats, so thus forcing them to sacrifice their better judgment and their political affinities. I don't. I don't have any uh, confidence that an electoral shellacking, either this November or next, will arrest the progress that uh, this the social justice movement has made taking over this party.
0: Well, because. You described them as hostages, but they, it's more like Stockholm syndrome. I, I mean, they be, they have come to believe most of this ideology. Most moderate to liberal Democrats believe a lot of this or at least don't have
1: antibodies against it, let's say. Or, I mean, the condition know, is not all that different from what Republicans are suffering through either. Right. They're hostages to a very unpopular set of beliefs and, that have been repudiated rather thoroughly rather comprehensively, right. electorally, and have I, made no share, no ch- changes as a result. Can I share one interesting thing with you? I'm going to share
0: this interesting thing with you, but first I want to talk to you about Moinkbox, and then I'm going to share the interesting thing with you. Not that Moinkbox isn't, Box isn't interesting, because ask yourself, why do just four companies control 80% of the U.S. meat industry? Because big food crushes the little guy, the family farmer. You can help change that with Moinkbox, Dot com The best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store. You'll only find it on the family farm or caught by independent Alaskan fishermen. That's why you need MoinkBox.com. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent. Outside of big agriculture, their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat. Is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the mid-aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com commentary to get a year of bacon for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month. Cancel any time. Moinkbox was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted, and Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink, So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now, and listeners to the show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but from limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box dot com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. So now we hear how Republicans uh, no longer believe that elections are fair, right? Republicans don't believe elections are fair. In polls, they all say that the election was unjustly veb. Everything is terrible. Elections aren't fair. Okay, so I'm, I'm now looking for this. Okay, this is from the latest morning consult poll. Nearly seven in 10 GOP voters don't believe the 2020 election was free and fair or have little or no trust in the U.S. election system, while 49% doubt that next year's midterms will be free and fair. These election skeptical Republicans are more likely than their comparatively trusting counterparts to be enthusiastic about voting in 2022. 36% of Republicans who say 2022 won't be fair are nonetheless extremely motivated to vote next year compared with 24% of Republicans expecting a fair shake who said the same. GOP voters who said 2020 wasn't free or fair are more than twice as likely as GOP voters who say it was to voice extreme enthusiasm about voting next year. 37% versus 15%. So, you know what I think? I actually think they they don't think that the election wasn't fair. No, it's a Stacey the Stacey Abrams playbook, yeah. Right. But yeah. they think that the culture surrounding the election was not fair. Trump's coverage wasn't fair. The media aren't fair. You know, they hampered him. They ham- they hamstrung him. They did all this. They did all that. And so the election's not fair, and elections are not fair. But guess what they want to do? They want to go vote to vote the bastards out who
1: came in last time. It's also a pursuit of a foolish consistency on our parts to expect anything like a—, a- coherent ideology from most voters. Uh, it's just the, the, the truth, you know, right. We're very, a narrow, a narrow selection of the country is consistent and principled and ideological.
0: But, you know, if you read the sort of never, the never Trump wing, it's like, you know, our democracy is under assault. It's unbelievable. All these people think the 2020 election wasn't fair. This is horrible. They're terrible. They don't believe in our democracy. They're going to have incredibly high turnout. The very people who say why would they turn out if they think that elections are st- are being are, are being stolen? Why they can't steal an election that's even more lopsided? Sure, they can according according to according to the people who say that the election isn't fair. Biden didn't get eighty one million votes. That obviously couldn't have happened. He didn't have enough lawn signs, and people weren't coming. You know, the, he didn't have boat rallies like Trump had, and all of that. I just think basically that when pollsters ask Republicans questions about whether or not things are fair, Republicans say and particularly Trump Republicans say they're not fair. Everything is everything is arrayed against us. But that doesn't mean that given an opportunity to use the levers of power available to ordinary people and the most available lever of power and this is going to happen in school board elections that ordinarily have 3 and 4 and 5% turnout By the way, you know, you're going to you're going to see this rush to school boards. They're going to get taken over all over the country because school board elections often take place like on a cold day in January when no one is supposed to vote in order to ensure Mm -hmm. that they are controlled by a small cabal of people. And suddenly, you know, it's going to take 17 different, you know, it's going to take 17 votes to win control of a school board that, you know, because only 16 people voted before And this is going to happen everywhere. So far from this being the lesson of 2020 being give up, there's no point because they're going to steal everything – these people are all becoming incredibly motivated populist voters.
3: Well, and I'm sorry, but I I know I I I dislike I dislike uh, Stacey Abrams as a political figure, but it's really important to keep reminding people this is not just a Republican tendency, and it's not just Stacey Abrams claiming she still was unfairly cheated out of an election and, and demanding you know uh, fewer fewer uh, barriers to entry to vote in Georgia. It's you know. Joe Biden endorsed that idea. Hillary Clinton endorsed the idea that she was robbed of the election. Terry McAuliffe recently endorsed this idea that she's the rightful governor of Georgia. So that, and again, it's a tactic. They they're they're using it to try to get people angry and to the polls to to vote for what they want them to vote for. It's now you know the the Trump the Trump side is has a more intense devotion to you know untruth on this score, but it's it's something that is is I think become a, a narrative on the left about the right that's going to make it very difficult when more and more of their figures on the left start using this for their own benefit. It's a tribal signifier
1: <clears throat> and it has been a democratic tribal sig- signifier since this century. I think the last legitimate presidential election that Democrats think they lost was 1988. Um, and Terry McAuliffe actually said the 2004 election was, was plagued. Uh, by problems like these but this is also why it was so foolish for donald trump to endorse himself as the spoiler again we talked about this earlier all his allies were saying no 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 donald trump didn't cause republicans to lose the senate in georgia when he absolutely did because that would have been made him responsible for all the woes that followed republicans in the minority uh, in their minority uh, status but then he went out and said look i can i have total control over these voters i can determine whether they show up i can determine whether they don't and if you don't accede to my will, you will suffer at the polls, Republicans. This is what he did the other day in a, in a press release. It was incredibly foolish because anybody could see that he wasn't the determining factor in this election or the next election. That he's not irrelevant, but certainly not the most dominant figure to the point where Democrats are now summoning him like Candyman saying his name three times in front of the <laughs> mirror, just attempting him to get get, get the specter to reappear. He's, he's cre- responsible for his own irrelevance because, all this sort of thing is just something you say. You don't actually believe it, right?
0: I just think what's more what's most important about this is that the 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 lesson, the logical lesson of there's no point Democrats steal every election is apathy. Apathy, surrender. I'm just gonna go do the you know Benedict option and live, you know, among my own people and Buy guns and buy cans of food and wait till you know wait till the you know wait till the army of 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 of, of trans women comes to take my children away and all of that right but that well is it's not also violent the polls... there,
3: but there are also people who see those circumstances and say I have to fight that and right, okay. I have to march I, on the capitol I agree I mean... but
0: I'm saying if 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 the if these polls measure anything what they measure is a discontinuity no one is telling them that they need to go out and vote. They are telling pollsters they are going to go out to vote. That's what enthusiasm numbers are about. That's why we measure enthusiasm and consider it important, particularly in midterms, because now we have we have two-thirds turnout or something like that in, in presidential elections. Enthusiasm matters a lot less. In midterms, we end up we had a we had a 55% turnout rate in 2018 because enthusiasm on you know anti-trump enthusiasm was off the charts crazy off the charts and it in turn caused a trump enthusiasm or like a republican counter enthusiasm simply to counter that democrats still got 9 million more votes than republicans we could be looking at exactly the reverse among the very people who are simultaneously telling pollsters that they don't believe that elections are fair which means this is an interesting discontinuity and you can't trust you can't trust the self-reporting of people when they talk about what is motivating them or what their actual thought processes are because they don't understand them what they understand is it's not fair the culture is dominated by these people which means they dominate elections too and i'm going to and they they steal everything and i'm going to stop them it's just it's it, it's interesting and that is something that bears watching outside of the whole trump question because if that feeling is real trump is not going to be able to suppress it the way he did in in georgia because it, this is already going to have moved beyond him this is going to be about i'm stopping those people they are bringing you know trans women onto the football field in my high school i am stopping them anyway That's one thing to talk about. The other thing I want to talk about is internet security Uh, and our friends at ExpressVPN, whose ad text I had here, and it closed, and now I have to find it again. Okay, I have it here. Um, Look, every time you connect to an unencrypted network, and we all do in hotel rooms, airports, cafes you got to understand your online data is not secured, and that's one of the reasons why you want to use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN prevents hackers on the same network from gaining access to and stealing your personal data like passwords and financial details. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it, and your data is valuable. A hacker could make up to 1000 bucks selling your personal info on the dark web how does expressvpn work it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data it'd take a hacker with a super super supercomputer over a billion years to get past expressvpn's encryption it's easy to use you fire up the app click one button and you are protected and it works on all devices phones laptops tablets and more so you can stay secure on the go so secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com commentary that's expressvpncom X P-R-E-S-S-VPN.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash commentary. Uh, Noah, we, we've been we've been wanting to talk about this for a couple of days or even a week, and we still haven't gotten there. But Mark Milley, controversial, obviously, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's done a lot of bad stuff lately, particularly lying about Afghanistan. Nonetheless, I uh, told uh, a congressional committee, I think, this week or something like that, that this Chinese hypersonic missile that we read about, that came, the surprise testing of the Chinese hypersonic, hypersonic missile, is a Sputnik moment. And we cannot underestimate the meaning of that. That means something very specific to a guy like Millie. When Sputnik totally by, took us totally by surprise in 1957, and the Soviets shot. Uh, a dog into orbit uh, on a, you know, on a, in a capsule. Um, The idea that we were technologically in danger, that we, that we had been lapped by a communist country determined to secure the upper atmosphere um, was nationally terrifying and it led to massive social, educational, and behavioral changes in the United States. The quota system at colleges, particularly elite colleges, collapsed almost instantly. Uh, the amount of federal spending on aerospace, on education in aerospace, space studies, Russian, and other things was increased dramatically. And of course, two, or three years later, we not only started the Apollo program, but but John F. Kennedy announced that we would send a man to the moon at, by the end of the decade and return him safely to Earth. And from that point forward, through Star Wars and everything else, the ending of the Soviet Union was written in part by our response to Sputnik. I am not seeing – and and by the way, this was also – we none of us lived through this, and I, I was born four years after Sputnik – And you guys were born 50 years after Sputnik. But, um, you know, so I didn't live through it. But it was a national frenzy terror situation. Uh, Bipartisan. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was one of the leaders as the Senate majority leader. Eisenhower was serious. Everybody, everybody was serious about this. I don't see anything like uh, we barely see a headline about the hypersonic missile.
1: Well, we that's not entirely true. We did. And most of the apoplexy was on the part of conservatives and on the right. Um, Millie's quote is a little more qualified than the headline suggests. He didn't say is. He said maybe or could be interpreted as a Sputnik moment because he's sort of a jellyfish. Um, doesn't want to stake out a position on this. People who... So I've got a lot of thoughts on this. I don't... I'm not a hypersonic weapons expert. Those who are, however, are of mixed views on utility... Of these sorts of weapons we should describe what they are a um, intercontinental ballistic missile leaves a silo has a giant parabolic arc in which it you know leaves the atmosphere re-enters the atmosphere at which point it is somewhat maneuverable not a lot but a little and that's the point at which in the re-entry phase you can intercept it with interceptors if we have enough and they're technologically capable of doing so. The hypersonic weapon is dangerous insofar as it doesn't do that giant parabolic arc thing. It leaves it sort of, uh, it it's in the atmosphere for the most part. It almost never exits the atmosphere. And when it does reenter it's it's uh, in the atmosphere and it can maneuver and glide. And that makes it, it, it capable of evading interceptors. And it can travel at hypersonic speeds over Mach five, which makes it, um, a very dangerous weapon because it can evade most defense defenses and we've known that we've been working on this stuff russia's been working on this stuff china's been working on this stuff for a while we didn't know the extent to which they were capable of fielding these weapons and this test is apparently really terrifying in part because it did everything a hypersonic missile is supposed to do and came within 12 miles of its target which doesn't sound you know very close but it's apparently close enough that they can work out the bugs um It's a shocking development insofar as it tells us where China's technology is. But the promise of hypersonic weapons is not really meeting the hype, so to speak, Uh, insofar as once these things are maneuvering in the atmosphere, once they come into the atmosphere, their heat signature is visible. So you can track them. Um, They're very fast, so they can evade interceptor technology. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're entirely... outside the realm of being intercepted by, for example, directed energy weapons, which don't necessarily exist in the field yet, but are on the verge of being uh, fielded. D- despite the scorn and mockery of of people on Twitter, it's popular to mock you know, te- te- technological advances like these sort of things as science fictional, but they're not science fictional. They're here now. So there's real debate over the extent to which this presents us with an existential strategic challenge. The strategic challenge would be if this, if China can guarantee that it can hit American forces and we cannot intercept them and our only recourse is a second strike, then they can hold us hostage in places like the Pacific. Then they can take Taiwan and say, listen, you can't respond to this. Otherwise, we're going to hit your your silos and you'll be self-deterred. Uh, that is the L- profound Abe, Abe, You
2: go, Abe, go on. But I mean, I, I don't doubt, uh, no everything you're saying, but I mean, isn't there a, 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 an additional or... or um sort of a more overarching concern here, which is that regardless of what these weapons specifically can accomplish, the test shows in a new way that China is serious, capable, and eager to show how advanced and aggressive it is willing to be.
1: Did we need more confirmation of that? Yes, we did. did. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's why I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The the, the, the major missile silo uh, manufacturing campaign that we've all been talking about for a year and a half didn't convince us Did the nuclear buildup that they've been engaged in not convince us. Then this isn't going to convince us.
0: Noah, get out of the weeds. Get out of the weeds. We're talking about public sentiment here. We're not talking about what, you know, uh, people who are, you know, consumed with the geopolitical struggle between the U.S. and China know. We're talking about what the public knows. What, and you what just the public said learned. No
1: headlines on this thing.
0: That's what I'm saying. What the public learned in 1957 was that the Soviets were ahead of us when it came to space, and the country panicked, and mobilized. And 12 years later, we had a man on the moon, because the idea was this is a remorseless, dangerous enemy. We are locked in an existential struggle with because of intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear and, and all of that, and we cannot allow this to happen. They are they are getting better than us at science now. Yeah, it really was.
1: Confu- I'm just confused yeah. by your conclusion because you what? have said yourself that the coverage of this event it doesn't even approach the right. splitnik moment. Therefore the conclusion being that this isn't going to shake anybody out of their complacency.
0: No. So the Sputnik moment was a public moment and that's what I'm concerned about that that we are so navel-gazed. We are so you know we, all we do is sit here and talk about, you know, we're talking about transgender bathrooms and meanwhile the most populous country on earth that has seen the fastest economic growth in world history over the last two generations that whose growth is slowing down as it is aging. And is getting more and more adventurous and more and more totalitarian, returning to its d- returning to its deeper roots, is starting to act in aggressive and frightening ways. And the United States is in no way mobilized to deal with the threat that might be getting posed here, whereas we were much more ready or much more present for it. So it wasn't a sput it's not a Sputnik moment in terms of public opinion maybe a sputnik moment in the sense that oh my god the chinese are you know are testing weaponry that we didn't even know they were close to having and what are we going to do about it and the simple fact of the matter is we have this ice cream licking moron in the white house who, you know, who is flying off to the Glasgow summit while he, you know, mutters incoherently on stage with Terry McAuliffe and the Chinese are testing missiles that are, you know, potentially existentially threatening
1: to us. Look, it might be in the weeds, so to speak, but it's nevertheless relevant that American deterrence is capable of deterring these kind of uh, aggressive actions. We are capable of imposing consequences on an aggressive, near-peer competitor, not a peer competitor, near-peer competitor, that they cannot absorb. Deterrence works. And Joe Biden, ice cream licking and all that, that he it is, said on the stage the other day that we will defend Taiwan aggressively and militarily. Now, the White House went and cleaned up after him and said, listen, we don't have any change in policy. We prefer the status quo. But he went out and said, listen, in effect, we will go to war to defend Taiwan's uh, independence.
0: Yeah, but he didn't mean it. So I don't know what the hell is going on there. And we actually have to. We have to. Uh, we have to end now. Uh, time's up. So we will take up more of this tomorrow. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.